0: This is Dwight Powell of the Dallas Mavericks, and you're listening to Numbers on the Boards with Bobby Carla and Jeff Skin Wade. Carla? Dwight, dude. He had one job, man. It's Corella. Welcome to Numbers on the Boards, your weekly podcast for all things Dallas Mavericks basketball. My name is Bobby Karela from Mavs.com. Joining me today is a guy who always brings two pies to his family's Thanksgiving dinner. Heck yes. One for them and one for himself. He is Jeff Skin Wade. I like all the pie.
1: Hey, happy Black Friday, Bobby. Hey, to you as well. Man, uh, we're going to celebrate by listening to Public Enemy and just doing, ordering all kinds of stuff online. So happy Black Friday to you, sir. What What is your uh, your proudest purchase so far today? Um, Coffee. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Black. I, I bought it black, hey, hey, There yeah. you go. Was it discounted? Uh, no, no. I didn't even get a deal. I should have haggled, shouldn't I? Uh, what, Our did, massive... did you at
0: least punch out some lady in line, or was it? No,
1: no, no. It was drive through style. Are oh. massive coffee chains giving deals? Or no, they just like cranking out their corporate coffee and you drink it.
0: Uh, I don't know, but I did hear McDonald's tweeted uh, insert copy and link earlier today, so that was a nice brand move. Okay. And then they followed it up with, "Looks like someone didn't have a McCafe Cafe yet today." Oh, well,
1: <laughs> I'm loving it. Yeah, Bye.
0: same. Me yeah. too, man.
1: Uh, okay. No advertising.
0: Skin, yeah, for yeah. sure. So I, I heard you talking about this the other day, actually, on uh, on the Ben and Skin show.
1: Good show. I listen every day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should. So, Ben was talking about his favorite Thanksgiving foods. Mm-hmm. Now, if you could uh, maybe say,
1: not your favorite five, maybe just your favorite one Thanksgiving food, what would it be? Okay. So, here's uh, here's where it gets difficult. And actually, I'm glad to keep this all in the basketball family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking about this with Dana and Buck after the Mavs win against Memphis on Wednesday night. Because, you know, obviously we're leaving the studio and we're all about to have Thanksgiving. And Dana's talking about favorite food and stuff. And I'm like, okay, the way it goes down in my family is that I I have the turkey. And then, you know, I don't know the difference in stuffing and dressing. I think it's people say it's the way it's prepared, but it's pretty much the same stuff, right? And so we have, uh, we call it stuffing. So I have the stuffing and I have the turkey and the mashed potatoes. And I do it all in one bite. So it's kind of hard to really differentiate You know, it's it's almost like a a fluid. It's almost like an offense where everybody touches the ball, right? It's like, well, wait, what what led to this this bucket? What led to this amazing taste? It's all of these things working in concert. So if you get a scoop and you have a little bit of turkey and a little bit of mashed potatoes and a little bit of stuffing and then you know whatever gravy you roll with on top, that's a taste sensation that is uniquely Thanksgiving that you can only get one day a year. So to me, it's not. That's my favorite thing. It's like, man, that stuff together. That's a that's got got like a hundred and thirty offensive rating. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's all of it. Bite. What about you?
0: Um, you know, I'm a little more simple. I'm gonna go ham, honey baked ham. You're gonna go ham like hard as a. Uh, no, oh. like like literally the meat. Okay, yeah, yep, the meat yep, ham. Yep. Yeah, uh, that that cut of pork. Um, that is for me. Just simple. Put some honey on it. Put it in the oven for honey
1: on the. Oh, okay, honey before you bake. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: for, a, for a for a period of time. I'm mm-hmm. not really an expert. Uh, in the kitchen. But you just put it in the oven, and it comes out, and it's all delicious. It's is, very moist, very flavorful.
1: Is Mama Corrala the conductor of this whole organization? She is. Yeah. She
0: is she's a legendary man.
1: She's right. great. Shout out to all the moms out there listening to uh, Numbers on the boards. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know what?
0: All of it really complemented the existential crisis that we all faced yesterday during that Cowboys game. Ugh. But the day before that, Skin, yes. the day before that, mm-hmm. the Mavericks rolled through Memphis and pulled out a 95-94 to 94 win against their division rival the Memphis Grizzlies, thanks to Harrison Barnes banked in buzzer beater with zero point zero point 0. zero left on the clock. Skin. Yes. After what happened on Monday against the Celtics, mm-hmm. whereas that game could have gone either way. The Mavericks were winning and you know, they were in front with a minute left to go. Right. Boston came back, forced O T. Harrison Barnes missed a potential game winner. Mm-hmm. For them to turn around and pull out a pretty insanely improbable win, getting the ball with 0.5 seconds left down to Barnes just basically heaves in a shot from 35 feet. That is about as extreme a turnaround as I could think of. Um, although, really, it's a matter of making a shot versus missing a shot. So it's really not an extreme turnaround, but like mm-hmm. the emotions you're feeling after that loss versus after that win are just like total, total opposite. So you've, you've got to kind of feel great for Barnes. Yep. Got to feel great for the team. Right. What were were you thinking? You were in studio for this game. Yep. Uh, What were you thinking as this was going on?
1: Well, uh, I'll just give you the straight – it was almost like a visceral reaction where I screamed like a little girl, and I turned, and I punched Buck in the shoulder. Because at that point, uh, we're on studio sitting at the desk watching the game from the desk because as soon as the game's over, you know, there's a quick break. We need to be all wired up, and we go. And Followell had an awesome call, and so I'm charged up. I got that in my ear, and I, wee or whatever, I and I turn, and I hit Buck, and I'm so pumped up, and I'm super excited because of, you know, look, we can look at the record and go, this has been a rough year, right? We can go back to our memory bank and remember times we've been let down by this season, but you have to, if you're building towards something, you have to have moments that are highs. You know, it can't just all be, you know, this is why I'm never on board with the tank crowd. Like, philosophically, I can't relate to purposely trying to suck. It's just not in my DNA. I don't get it. I don't get, because you have people on this team that you want to keep moving forward you want them to have successes the NBA is a building process like any other league it's a process it's a building process so it's not about getting your ass kicked every day and so you have to have high moments and there are so many I think positive interesting wrinkles about the final minute of that Memphis game that even tie back to the previous week of basketball very important things you know I think the people that said this year is all about Dennis Smith Jr., I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? And so if this year is all about Dennis Smith Jr., Dennis Smith Jr. has to have successes. You know, one of the reasons that Dennis Smith Jr. went ninth in that draft is there was a perception that he had a bad attitude because of all the crap that went on at NC State that was losing, that was bad that was negativity. So you can't operate in a world of constant negativity. These guys compete their ass off. And I know you saw how J.J. and Dirk were reacting at the end of the Boston game as these plays were going down. They were so invested in that because they're winners, and winners win. So you just can't have all this losing. So having what I think is just a gut-wrenching, oh, man, the the offensive goaltend call, I mean, me and Buck were sitting there debating it. I was just talking myself into, no, that's offensive, golden yeah. You got it. That's hell no. At Buck. first look, man, it really did look like it was on the cylinder. Yeah, I'm sitting there going, Buck, it's, it's infinity up to the sky around the rims. He goes up, and Buck's like, man, you sound like you're crazy. He goes, that's, <laughs> that's a bucket. And Buck, of course, was right. Uh, so after all that to not go your way to then get the game-winning shot and with the guy you're talking about getting it, who probably felt horrible after the Boston game – that was an awesome, awesome win for the Mavericks, the one that will, will they'll roll with for a while. And now they've won two out of three games against, uh, you know, with some really tough competition in there. Yeah, for sure.
0: And I know that, you know, not everybody gets to go in the locker room or whatever. So you see, you can read the quotes, but it's one thing to read what the players are saying. It's another thing to actually see them, you know, face-to-face as they're saying it. And, man, after that Boston game, Barnes at his locker just talking about, I mean, he's he's very self-critical, just whether he's playing well or not. Mm-hmm. But after that game, he was really down, man. This is a guy who's like always super professional, right. always in a always in a pretty good mood, always you know just ready to go. But man, after that game, because he missed a couple shots, he turned it over a couple times. Right. You know they they were winning in overtime, and they you know they let two leads slip away in the same game, and he was just really down in the dumps, and you really feel for the guy just on a personal level. Right. So then to see him, you know, two days later, actually get that moment. On really, I mean, if Dirk were to make that shot, Dirk would say, like, they shouldn't even count that because it was right. banked and it was right. ugly. But, like, at this right. point, you, you got to take what you can get, man. Yeah. And um, one thing that really, st- like, that you might not think about is, like, that tip-in happened with .3 left. But then on the review, they added those .2 seconds. Right. That totally changed the complexion of the game. Yes. Because if, if there's .3 seconds left, they can't. They don't have enough time to catch it like that and launch it at the rim. I mean, they almost have to run an alley. You place. know who's
1: taking your last second shot if it's point three? Is it's a lob for Nerlens Noel? Yeah, and he probably gets his legs taken out from under him. That's yeah. the truth. Of and it. he he
0: might have to shoot free throws or something. Yeah. In which case, is like, man, do you really want a guy to shoot free throws? who has been cold. He's been sitting nice. on the
1: bench. And and to your points, so what people understand in the NBA. Uh, you have to have more than .3 seconds on the clock for it to be a legitimate catch-and-shoot situation. Otherwise, it's not allowed. It's got to be a tip. Mm. So that was super critical for, uh, you know, as you pointed out, it's it's a great point. And I want to get back to the Barnes thing for a second because I think players accept shots go in or they don't go out where players get down on themselves and tend to get down on their teammates is critical turnovers. And I think the, the one uh, play that probably stood out to Barnes is when he was isolated on the left side of the floor, and he went right, and Horford dug down, and, and it led to a turnover. And those are the things he's going to replay in his mind as he's laying in bed. How could I have done that differently? But there's another, I think, amazing redemption story in the Memphis game. And it's Dennis Smith Jr. Agreed. And it's for a lot of reasons. So the best guy I've ever seen, uh, Harrison Barnes hit the shot. Awesome. He's not the guy that made the play. The guy that made the play is Dennis Smith Jr. Great pass right in his pocket. An amazing pass. And the best I've ever seen at that was Jose Calderon. Jose Calderon was an inbound god. I mean, dude, you talk about putting it right where you can catch and release. So Dennis Smith Jr. had two shots to win the game. He had the shot he took with, what was it, like 20, it was uh, eight seconds. Eight seconds left. That went in and out, and I thought it was awesome that they gave him the ball to do that because he he wasn't involved in crunch time in Boston, and I'm sure he's watching that, and he's got so much going on in his head. Then uh, they gave him the chance to make the pass. He is more important than Harrison Barnes in that play. Harrison Barnes is going to catch and shoot wherever he is. The ball is going to go in or it's not. It's all about the pass. And to give him the confidence to, one, make the right decision because it's a great – you know, he's got the option to go to Wesley or go to Harrison. And the mistake was made by Brooks on the switch. There was a second where he gave Harrison Barnes just enough room uh, to catch – to shoot and catch that ball. So, one, Dennis has to make the right read. Number two, as you pointed out, he's got to put the pass in the perfect spot. And whenever there's a game-winning shot, the glory always goes to the guy, and I get it. But Dennis Smith Jr. won you that game. You know what I'm saying? Harrison Barnes wasn't trying to bank that shot in. The whole point is he's shooting it no matter what as soon as he gets it. The ball went in. It's all about the pass getting to him to where he can put it in a position to do it. Dennis Smith Jr., full redemption. And, you know, people aren't going to talk about that, but that's an outstanding moment for that guy who's about to turn 20 on Saturday? On November 25th. Yeah. Yeah, How about that? So uh, that was my favorite part of all that was – and, and and dude, when we were in the studio, Buck was going. When I was my final year as a veteran, I never played. They only put me in to make the inbounds passes for those situations because <laughs> the veteran. It knew is what a skill though, man. You know? It's
0: a huge skill. And like, yeah, like you were saying, he had the choice between uh, Wes and Barnes, and I think Wes finished his kind of action, his his little curl or yes. his cut first. Right. So if Dennis, I mean, he's a nineteen. He, was nineteen at the time. If he's looking thinking like, Man, I got I just have to get this ball in, like I've gotta count to five. I've gotta get it to a guy who's open, like he could just panic and easily make that pass to Russ right. who had no no He was more draped. Yeah, no he shot, was way yeah. more draped. Yeah, there's no way that he gets that shot off. Yep. And um yeah, he may he had a lot of patience. And yeah, the redemption story of him sitting on the bench in Boston and look, man, I know that you wanna develop him, but whenever you have a lead against the best team in the league at home, it's on a fifteen game winning streak and you gotta stadium full of 20,000 people that want to see this team win Mm -hmm. like I'm I'm all for letting JJ play he had a really nice game and Dennis was four for 16 so you know he he deserves crunch time experience but I think that night JJ was the hotter hand so I'm okay with with him with with Rick riding with JJ,
1: I never once down the stretch said, "Man, we need to get Dennis in there." And there was a moment where I was like, "Wow, Dennis hadn't played at all, has he?" And I had to you know look down at the box score. But the way the game was going, I was not watching it going. We've got to get Dennis in there if we're going to win this game. The guys who are on the floor, had it. Uh, Boston caught him and beat him in overtime. Mm. Uh, I don't know that Dennis changes that. I thought JJ was incredible. I thought the guys are on the floor, floor played great. We had our mistakes down the down the stretch. I don't know that Dennis changes that for the better or for the worse. Yeah,
0: and I think that the fact that that Barnes's game winner rimmed out and they ended up losing in overtime only added to that narrative because if Barnes hits that shot, people probably don't even realize it. But I think man, whenever you watch games and and all you're thinking about is who is or isn't on the floor, you have to have just such a detached like it's such a detached experience to think about who is or isn't playing and i mean you just you can only play the game in front of you right so right. uh so i was i was fine with jj being in there but for dennis to react the way he did and respond the way he did and end up having a really positive game against memphis late after basically being benched right. against boston i mean that right. that shows a really high character from him um his shot to maybe put the team in front or i guess to to yeah, to put the team in front because it was ninety-two, ninety-two, mm-hmm. and he shot with probably what five or six seconds left on the shot clock. Maybe could have taken another dribble. Right. Maybe could have taken a little more time off the clock, and his shot rimmed out. Yeah, and you're a good thinking, shot. man, this is two games in a row. They got a good look at the end of the game, and it just didn't go for them. Yeah, and Memphis goes down, and they get the they get the putback dunk.
1: And, and then also we should mention his flurry in the third quarter. Uh, three threes. Yeah, three threes, and it all started. Uh, some of those threes he took, in my opinion are not the kind of shots I want players taking. However, (laughs) I'm okay with guys taking them once they're feeling it. And I think the real critical first three was the one where Wesley got down inside and kicked it back out to a wide-open Dennis. And once that one goes in, you know, coaches always get mad when there's a possession and one guy touches the ball. And Dennis has had some of those. And you got to get away from those unless you're on fire. Because that's like the intangible thing that happens, and I think any basketball person will tell you, if the guy's got it like that, you you ride it. And so once that one went down, it was a great, you know, people always tell you it's better to get in and then kick it out for the open three. Dennis had the open three, and then the next two was just the dude was feeling
0: it. Yeah, when the, literally the time down the floor before he hit that first three, mm-hmm. he missed one. Right.
1: He brought it down, took about
0: ten dribbles, and, then, right. and launched one and missed it. Yes. And you're thinking like, it's the same shot, he was open by the same amount, but one of them was in the flow of the offense and the other wasn't. Right. And his shooting numbers this year bear that out too. Like, if When he takes between zero and six dribbles before shooting, his EFG, his effective field goal percentage is above 50, and you guys talked about that on the broadcast, what effective field goal percentage means. Mm-hmm. It's basically counting threes as one and a half shots because it's worth one and a half points, or like one and a half times more than right. a two point shot. So above 50 is good. When he takes seven or more dribbles and shoots, his EFG is below forty-five, which yeah. is really not good. That means so, the ball
1: is sticking, is it? Yeah, like it's sticking.
0: Seven dribbles is a lot of dribbles, and you're right. bringing it up, and you're not passing, and then you're, you know. So, so yeah, it was nice to see him play within the flow of the offense. And then once you see one or two go down, then you can kind of, yeah, you can kind of freelance a little bit. But yeah, you know, I thought he played. I thought he played way better against Memphis.
1: You don't want to lead the league in dribbling. By the way, we got away from something that uh, I wanted to hit, and I kind of steered us towards Dennis. It's my fault. You posted uh, on Twitter uh, Harrison Barnes' clutch numbers yeah. since he's been here, and they're really good.
0: Yeah, they are. So, last season, it's kind of season by season thing, but this year he's shooting um, above
1: 50% in the clutch, which is outstanding. Awesome. Yeah, basically. Keep in, and keep in mind, just conceptually, right? At the end of games, defenses are more hyper-focused. Mm. And so you'll go look at some of the best players. They're shooting lower percentages in the clutch than they normally shoot. That's yeah. not that uncommon at all.
0: Yeah, dude, even even Dirk. I mean, you think of, like, guys who hit game winners, and people's percentage on game-winning shots with, like, under 10 seconds left, even the best ones shoot, like, in the 30s. Right. Like, Dirk and Kobe and Carmelo Anthony and Damian Lillard and all these guys who are like, man, these guys are the, the clutch kings. You miss a ton of shots late in games because right. the defense is set – you're not fooling anybody. No, you know? it's not
1: in the flow of a game. It's not a great shot. You know, sometimes a coach will drop something spectacular. What This is always fun. If you're ever at a game, watch, and it's a game-winning shot situation. There's a timeout. Watch the opposing coach. Watch uh, opposing team. Watch how many guys are pointing out spots on the floor because they've scouted all these plays. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. People always remember a couple years ago, the Monte Ellis game winners on the little curl, right? Yeah. What I don't know if people know, maybe they don't know, is the Vince Carter uh, miracle three-pointer against the Spurs in the playoffs that a lot of people think are one of the greatest shots ever. Mm -hmm. That's the exact same play. That was the first time all season long they had gone to the counter option. And I was standing on the baseline because that was a playoff game, and I was going to do an interview on the floor. If we won. So because of the nature of the madness, if the shot goes in, I've got to already be on the floor ready to go. So I'm standing there at the edge of the Maverick bench during that timeout. And if you go back um, – it was uh, uh, Corey, uh, God, the 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 UT kid that now is in Toronto. Corey Joseph. Yes, he was defending the ball, mm-hmm. uh, and so the king of the inbound pass, Jose Calderon. Jose Calderon was, like, was making the pass, and so there was all this discrepancy as to whether Joseph could check in or not. So there was all this extra time. So as this extra time was going on, I'm standing about ten feet away from Carlisle, and I look over at him, and I can tell I'm doing my masterful lip reading. He's talking to Vince, and he says, the ball's coming to you. And I believe, I've never talked to Rick about this. He might tell me I'm full of it. But I believe it's because of the way they were positioning Corey Joseph. They were positioning him to not be able to get that ball into the curl on Monte. And Pop was out here directing. There's all this chatter going on. And during all that chaos, Rick told Vince, be ready. The ball's coming to you. We had not gone to that option once on that play all year long. Calderon made, if you go back and look, the pass is picture perfect. It is It was an unbelievable pass. It's a thing of beauty, and Vince hits the shot, and everyone always talks about Vince's shot. It's a great shot. Uh, And he actually had the little hesitation, right? And he he went left, but it was a beautiful pass. And that's a great example of all the scouting that goes on. The Spurs were hyper-focused on Monte while this other little thing is open. So uh, I just think those are neat little wrinkles when we talk about why a clutch number would be lower. They all know probably, I mean, there's a guy who spent time breaking down all your last-second They're Mike Shedd. Right. They're Mike Shedd. He's that. sitting on a plane flying to the next game, and he goes, hey, coach, here's the five plays they'll run in the situation. Here's all the options. I mean, so that's why it's so much harder to score in the playoffs. The scouting is so hyper-focused. It's not, where are we, Washington? Oh, we're, in, uh, we're playing the Knicks tomorrow night. You know, it's like when you dial in and you got, you know, a seven-game series with a team, you know everything they're going to do. Yep. And it's whether or not these – Badass gladiators can go outperform, You know the defensive waves coming at them. Yeah, and that's why generally late game situations, it's
0: one on one. You're not mm-hmm. trying to run a play because it's there's so many timeouts. Teams are going to know what you're going to do. Right. So. You give it to a guy that can create his own shot and who's not going to turn it over. Right. And for many, 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 many billions of years here, that has been Dirk. Yep. And now it's becoming Harrison Barnes. Barnes never turns it over except for against Boston. That one game, and that yeah. was like a freak thing. Right. But otherwise, you can count on him to get a pretty good shot. Yeah. And uh, last year, he was great. He hit a couple game winners last year. Uh-huh. A couple a couple big shots. Clipper game stands out yeah, on the, the road. At at Clippers, yeah. He lost the ball, actually. He almost did turn it over. Right, and he, right. And he still hit a game winner. Um. But last year, he was third in the NBA in clutch field goal percentage. That's awesome. Among guys that have taken, I I chose 60 uh, clutch shots, which is clutch is last five minutes of the game with the lead at plus or minus five points. Mm-hmm. So it's whenever the game is close, late. And the reason I chose 60 is because that's how many shots LeBron took. So oh, wow. You, you have to include LeBron in yeah, this. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, so Barnes is third, 49.3% behind C.J. McCollum, who is a killer, and he LeBron, is. who is the king. He's the king. So if you're up there with those guys. Yeah. Then you I mean you're
1: in pretty good shape. I've That's always it. said the three best players in the league are CJ McCollum, LeBron and Harrison Barnes. Exactly. I've always that, said
0: you that. start a team with those three guys, you'll man. win everything yeah, forever. Yeah, you're, you're
1: beating the Warriors for sure. <laughs> but
0: uh but yeah, I mean that just shows you and and he never turns it over too in those situations and I know Barnes turned it over against Boston mm-hmm. uh last year against the Clippers in mm-hmm. a big game at home, mm-hmm, uh, right. not at LA, but he and Blake Griffin traded turnovers actually. Barnes turned it over but then he he stripped Blake on the right, end.
1: so i mean that was the game where berea destroyed blake griffin and yeah. blake griffin fell to the ground like he'd been shot yeah i mean jj does lift a lot of weights <laughs> oh so. he's so popeye yeah it's unbelievable yeah. look at those forearms
0: oh for sure so i mean th- you know you always remember the turnovers you probably always remember the misses mm-hmm. but man he's made plenty of big
1: big big shots for yeah. this team already. He's and been
0: great. He's only, what, 25 or 26
1: years old? I think that gets lost in all of it because, you know, he was on the big stage with Golden State, but uh, he's still a baby. You know, I I always I was thinking about this in terms of, man, you know, it used to be, and I think this changes because guys come in the league earlier than they used to, but they used to say an NBA player's prime is 27. Reason being, He's still a great athlete, but he's had all of the experience. But that was back when the guys came in the league and they were 21 and 22 years old. I think now that they're coming in when they're 19, they're reaching their prime a little bit earlier, or they have a, a more open window of quote-unquote primeness. But keep in mind that when Dennis Smith Jr. has got a couple seasons under his be- uh, belt, Harrison Barnes going to still be right in that sweet spot of a player in his prime. Really something to look forward to, I yeah, think. Yeah,
0: think of it as whenever Dirk was coming up, I mean, Dirk came, he didn't play his first game until he was 20. But at the time, Michael Finley was, what, 24, 25? Right. So it's kind of the same thing. As as Dirk was becoming, whoa, it's like 2002 and Dirk just dropped 30 and 15 on KG. Right. Well, Finley's 28, and he's in the middle of his prime, and he's able to take a lot of the burden. And then around 2003, 2004, then they kind of, you hand it off the baton. And we saw that happen with Dirk and Barnes last year eventually you know if all goes well it will happen between barnes and dennis mm-hmm. but right now man we're in the middle of the harrison barnes show and that dude is playing the best ball of his career i think it's this been all, awesome. these last couple weeks he's it's been, been awesome he's been really good um so in a second i want to talk to you about music skin. okay i love music but right now i want to propose to you a theory that i've developed oh wow yeah is so- this the
1: corolla theory
0: um, no, I actually did name it. Okay. So, uh, I call it the Bob and Skin Boost of Success, or Biz Biz. Okay. Uh, This so, sounds like
1: we're about to have a seminar of some kind.
0: Oh, man, buckle, buckle okay, in. Okay, let's Buckle go. in. Let's do it. Uh, right in this studio, just buckle
1: right up. So, our first guest of the season, Skin, do you remember who that was? Our first guest of the season was Dennis Smith Jr. of the yes, Dallas Mavericks. That
0: is, that is correct. And we talked to him right at the end of October.
1: Now, if you'll remember... About two
0: days later, he had an awesome game, Mm -hmm. and then he had six more awesome games. So two days after talking to us, he started a seven-game streak of scoring at least 15 points, Mm -hmm. and that included a game in which he had a career-high 27. Mm -hmm. Our second guest, (laughs) Wesley Matthews. Yes. I talked to him the morning of the game against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Right. That night, he kept LeBron under 20. Yes. The Mavericks unfortunately lost, but... It was not because of West.
1: He had like five fouls for a big stretch of it too, Yeah, and he having was to check awesome. LeBron. He was awesome. Yeah. Okay. Guess number three. Well, hold on though. Didn't West get hot from the field too? Right oh, after he did. that? Yeah. Started draining a couple, yeah, he had
0: couple, 20, couple twenty point games. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. You're only adding. You're only building my case. That's here,
0: right. Guess number three. Harrison Barnes. Uh huh. We talked to him. He is now, I think, like his last like eight or nine games, he's averaging like 22 points on 50% shooting, and uh-huh. all these crazy numbers. He's had a couple double-doubles. He had 25 rebounds in two-game span, and he hit a game winner hmm. against uh, the Memphis Grizzlies. Hmm. So, dude, is there enough evidence now to say that the Bob and Skin boost
1: of success is real, or is it just a bunch of BS? There's sure enough not enough evidence to say that it ain't real. You yep. know what I mean? I think the real test would be let's get Cuban on and see if he can figure out a way to make money after that oh I mean right right if we what if like uh we had him on and he acquired a new company I mean wow, yeah, how awesome would that be i I love it I think it's accurate um yeah, I mean, so why don't we do this? Why don't we let uh if if you're listening to the podcast, why don't you send us a tweet at Bobby Carolla at skin Wade? And let us know who you think the next guest we should try to get on is, and then we'll really put it to the test.
0: Yeah, if you want someone to start playing well. Right. Dude. Who do you want to see just go off? Yeah, and you know what? After we tell the team this, those guys in the locker room are going to be, like, fighting each other to get on. I would hate for yeah. there
1: to be internal strife over who gets to be our next guest. Yeah. It really fractures the team, but that's just the way this podcast is going. Yeah, dude. We we have
0: launched three careers. Wow. These guys – were nobodies before they came on the podcast, and now
1: they're, like, locking down superstars and and hitting game winners. We should have done this podcast on Wednesday and had the entire Dallas Cowboys team on this podcast.
0: Maybe that is episode five. That would be incredible.
1: Okay, Skin, are you ready to
0: talk about some tunes? Hells yes. Okay, so the other day on Twitter you shared a link to an article on the Undefeated, Mm -hmm. which is an uh, ESPN-affiliated website, and it was an article, I believe, was it Mark Spears? Mark Spears wrote it, it. yes. yeah, so Mark Spears wrote it. It was about the OKC Thunder, Sam Presti, who's their their GM, basically their their uh, personnel guy, mm-hmm. and Billy Donovan, who's their head coach, uh, meeting and talking with the Marsalis brothers, Branford and Wynton. Wynton is a trumpet god. Yes, he is. I grew up playing trumpet. He is like the man because he's able to play classical stuff and he's able to play jazz. He's a virtuoso, like one of the top 10 trumpet players of all time he's like
1: the man and carrying the torch for the jazz tradition like he is a true traditionalist and i believe if he's not the only guy to have ever done this he's the only living guy to have won grammys in both the jazz and the classical categories yeah He's, He's a beast. amazing. Yeah, yes. if
0: you want to get into classical music, listen to his uh, variations of Carnival of Venice, and that will like change your life. But anyway, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, so the the Thunder guys met with the Marsalis Bros to talk about the connections between jazz and basketball. And if you've grown up around the Mavericks, you you are aware of Holger Geschwinder, mm-hmm. who is uh, Dirk's basketball coach, life coach, best friend, and all that stuff. Right. And Holger has always talked about jazz and basketball. Dirk grew up playing think the saxophone mm-hmm. played guitar he played a lot of instruments uh, Holger always talks about the rhythm of the game the rhythm of dribbling the rhythm of your your the way your body moves and your feet move um, it all ties to music but we have not really heard musicians talk about how what they do ties to basketball or like we haven't heard the opposite we've heard basketball guys talk about it but we right. haven't heard musicians skin I know you play a lot of music I know you've you're always around the music scene. You've played music growing up, and and you've been in different bands and groups. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, that article must have meant something to you for you to share it. But what is what is kind of your what what drew you to that article, and what are kind of your thoughts on this whole thing?
1: Well, I think there's like uh, to get overly philosophical about it. You know, basketball has always been. I think the reason it's a quote unquote city game, or, or people are attracted to it is because it's opportunities for individuals to shine in a real flashy kind of way and do these things that that are amazing to us. And I think, you know, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, the advent of the YouTube mixtape where you see all the guys' highlights where he's breaking a dude's ankles. But that stuff is great, and I love that stuff. But it always has to work within the construct of a team and team play, and then your teammates putting you in position to do that stuff. And I've always felt like there's a big similarity between that and jazz music, because when you have a guy, when you have a good jazz combo going, a guy is going to solo and he's going to shine. And that's sort of like the big part of jazz is these guys taking solos, which is equivalent to a guy isolating and breaking a dude's ankles. But you got to know what the chord changes are. Right, they, they have a direction that they're going to go. There's, there's a total bit of improvisation, but there's a framework within the structure of a team. And even within that article, they're talking about, all right, two guys sitting in a room, play whatever you want without communicating with the other guy, and it sounds horrible. All right, play whatever you want within the framework of what we're going to be doing, and it sounds magical. And so there's this correlation here. And actually, you know, I grew up, I was a teenager in the 80s when rap was coming up. And because basketball was a city game, you know, we would go to the park with our jam box and we'd play Run DMC. And I think there's always been, And if you look on, you know, YouTube, there's the kids today, it's all about rap. And that's the way it was when I was growing up. But there was always similarities between rap and jazz. In fact, there was a jazz rap movement in the early 90s that Branford Marsalis was a part of. Uh, he played on uh, Public Enemies, um, uh, the, he, the solo part when they did the for, um, oh, my God, uh, I'm blanking on the song. Fight the Power. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Fight the Power. Okay. Branford Marcellus plays saxophone on that. That's like 1989, 1990. Uh, and then, um, so anyways, there's always been all these correlations between these three things, and it's something I've always felt strongly about. And so to see it be recognized by what I think is a winning organization and very smart people got me excited and I'm reading this article and it's well-written and well-read and I'm like, I want this out for other people to see it if they're not seeing it because it's all things that I believe in and I saw you connecting with it and you've got a music background and you love basketball, so I think you see these same parallels. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I never played jazz. We didn't have
0: a jazz band when I was in high school and a, a few of my friends played jazz. Uh, one of my best friends is a trumpet player and he's in a, he's in a traveling jazz band. Um, there are rules in jazz. I'm more of a classical, uh, I guess, musician. I guess I, I played all through high school. I played trumpet for like seven or eight years. Um, I was never super good, but I was good enough to, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I played a lot. I took it very seriously in high school. So um, everything in music, especially classical music, there's like a pyramid of sound, right? So whenever you, whenever you think whenever you hear a song on the radio, whenever you hear like a melody. You're thinking of like the main line. You're thinking of the, the, the melody. I, I mean the melody. How do you describe the melody? Like doe a deer, female deer. That is the melody. It's right? the lead line. It's, it's what the you're lead humming. Line. You're not humming chord changes. Yeah. You're humming the melody. Yeah. But within this pyramid of sound, I mean that's that's your superstar. Mm-hmm. That's your that is the, the melody is your st- the star of your team. But that is only the little tippy top of the pyramid where like the junk food goes on the food pyramid. Like that is the. <laughs> That is the, what you hear the most, but that is the least important thing to the to the quality and to the dimension of the sound that you're trying to build. The most important stuff is the bass line. The most mm-hmm. important stuff is what the tubas are doing, what the mm-hmm. euphoniums are doing, what the bassoons are doing, and the bass clarinets. That's your that's your body. That's your it's your foundation. That's your Tyson Chandler. Yeah, that's the right, guy That does right. all the dirty work that you might not even notice if you're not watching him very carefully. He's out there laying guys out. He's setting hard screens. He's rolling to the basket. He's doing a bunch of grunt work. But that's what makes that's what churns your makes this engine hum, right. really. And um, it's all about roles. Even if you're the guy that's soloing, if you if you have sixteen bars in in, a, in the middle of a jazz chart, yeah, that sixteen bars is about you. But then it's someone else's turn Mm -hmm. and you got to go to the background. You got to, you got to play this countermelody. You got to play, you know, you got to join the rhythm section. You always have to be aware of what the drummer's doing, right? What the, the guy with the slap bass is doing, what the clarinets are doing. Like, it's always about listening. It's about communicating without saying a word. It's about making eye contact Mm -hmm. with your, with your conductor and Mm -hmm. with your, with your fellow people. I mean, man, I was in our, our high school wind symphony was like a 70 piece band and there were only six trumpets and I was one of those trumpets and like. So yeah, your voice matters because you're one of six, but you're really one of 70. Yeah. And the trumpets are like the fifth most important instrument in this part of this piece. So I got to listen to the tubas, the horns, the flutes, the oboes. I got to see what my director's doing. I got to listen to the glockenspiel in the back. Like, it's all about communication. It's all about knowing who's doing what and and knowing where you belong within the context of this piece of this song that you're playing. And I think that 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 is very basketball-y. Yeah. Because there's five guys on the floor. You're five fingers on a hand. It's not five guys. It's like you're you're part of the same unit. So it's all about communication. It's all about chemistry and all, all these things that are, like, unquantifiable.
1: And and don't you love that Billy Donovan, if you read the article, learned so much from talking to Wynton Marsalis that he reached out to him at later times, like spent an hour talking to him on the phone, picking his brain, because you're in the business of you know communicating to people and trying to get them to buy into this bigger concept and so he's talking to a guy who's led the way in a different field but doing the same type of thing and being a band leader and how important that is and i just love all those connections and i love when people at the top of their craft in different walks of life learn from other people i just think that's a really neat connection Uh, just a, a quick little nugget uh tony romo was at the celtics game And I knew what a big fan he was of Brad Stevens. He loves him. And so I went back there and actually during the press time, I went up to Brad and said, hey, do you know Tony Romo? And uh, would you like to meet him? Because I know he's a big fan. And and here's Brad going, man, I love watching him on the CBS games. He does such a good job broadcasting. And so they ended up getting together after the game. Uh, And I just think that's a good example of... Tony wanted to learn something from Brad that is going to help him do what he does, and Brad was excited to see someone who did something great in another sport. When you get to the top, there's very few people. And, and oh, and Winton, uh, it was either Winton or Bradford said that in the article. They said there's very few people in the world that can do what we do at the highest level. Talking about musicians, it's the same as basketball. There's only a few guys in the world that can really do what the top guys can do. So, yeah, we understand each other, even though they're completely different disciplines. Mm. I think that stuff is so interesting when we're talking about because we watch guys exhibit greatness on a regular basis. The journey of everything that goes into getting to being a Dirk and dropping 30,000 points, it's walking with a canoe on your head or learning saxophone or all this crazy stuff Holger made him do – All that stuff is fascinating to me because it's all a little piece of how do you get to a guy that dropped 30,000 points in an NBA career? We are here to marvel at these experts. Right. And Skin, you and
0: I are going to continue working to become podcast experts. That's what we do. Yeah. Uh, This is a good show, Skin. I enjoyed this. Good show, Skin. Yeah, definitely uh, recommend – could you recommend, like, someone wanted to get into music, get Mm -hmm. into jazz, for example. What is, like –
1: I've always said the, the the starting block for jazz, the one that you have to probably start with, and anybody who got into jazz will tell you this, but it's Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. The kind of Blue, man. And it's, a, it's, a, it's what they call a modal jazz record, but it's very peaceful. It's very relaxed. You've probably heard the title track, So What, a million times, yes. whether you know it. And the, the real famous thing about that is the lead line is provided by a bass, which is very unique in jazz. Mm. Um, but uh, it is the seminal jazz record and it's uh it's just you know the probably Miles is great. Well, you know, people he's he played for several decades, but that's the one that you can recommend, and no one's ever going to come back and go, "Oh, that record sucked." Like it's a great, no matter what your background is, it's a great entrance into the world of jazz. Yeah,
0: yep. it's awesome, and it gives you an appreciation for teamwork and yep. for individual expression.
1: And John right. Coltrane plays on it, and Cannonball Adderley, and some of these really big time guys. So all, it's a super team. It's a super team. They
0: ruined the jazz games.
1: Ken. They did. This, they're the
0: Golden State Warriors <laughs> yeah. of uh, 1968. It'll never be the same. Yeah. Alright, well thank you guys for tuning in. We will be back next week. And uh I guess enjoy your week of basketball, Skin. Yeah, let's get some more W's. Members on the boards with Jeff Skinway and Bobby Corella. It's Corella.